Welcome to both Success and Integrity with Bessie Graham, a podcast dedicated to established business leaders like you, ready to bring more meaning into your life in a way that strengthens rather than threatens the financial stability of your business. I'm your host, Bessie Graham. I've worked with business owners, governments, and large funding bodies like the United Nations for over 20 years to bring doing good and making money back together. So let's unpack why you don't have to choose between experiencing success or having integrity in your life. Today, we're going to jump into one of the aspects that has been a passion and focus for me for many years, which is around the idea of leadership. And when I think about the challenges that the world is facing and the incredibly powerful role that business and particularly looking at small and medium enterprises, so those that are the biggest employers in the world and have a disproportionate uh, influence or impact, if you like, on, on both local and global economies, one of the critical conversations that I don't see happening enough is that for business to play that positive role, there's actually a lot of work that we as individual leaders need to do on ourselves to position our thinking and mindset to be able to engage effectively. And I had the privilege growing up of being surrounded by great thinkers and leaders who influenced me in that way. And so I have always really had my sense of leadership being deeply rooted in the love of and pursuit of wisdom, which is what philosophy is all about. And so today I have with me a guest who actually I was introduced to by one of those thinkers who I grew up with, Mark Strom. And the the reason that I have Tom Morris with us today is that he is a philosopher, but also a pioneer in the area around business thinking and how we do this beautiful connecting back up with ancient ideas, the pursuit of the love of wisdom, and what its role is when we think about navigating the complexity and, and the, the environments that we are operating in as businesses. So it is wonderful to, to have Tom with me today. And Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the podcast. It's great to be with you, Bessie. It's good to see you after all these years. And I'm really, really happy about the great work you're doing. Yeah, I'm wondering, Tom, if you want to just jumping in on, on that opening piece around what that role of business is. What are your thoughts? Like what comes to mind for you when you think of the critical role of that pursuit of wisdom for us as business leaders? You know, we easily lose track of the history of business and the purposes behind business throughout most of human history. In too many people's minds, business has just become a money machine. You know, how can we increase our profits? How can we increase uh, shareholder value? Business was never meant to be just a money machine. It was meant to be an engine for human good. And part of that was the financial side. It always has been, but that wasn't the entirety of the picture. It's really interesting to me. You go back to the great philosophers, and I love it that you mentioned philosophy as, you know, pursuit of wisdom, philo, sophia, love of wisdom, an, uh, an object of love. When you don't have it, you seek it. When you have it, you embrace it. So philosophy is just the seeking and embracing of wisdom, insight for, for living. Business is a, a way of living part of our lives, not set apart from the rest of our lives, but continuous with the rest of our lives. And you know, it's it's an interesting thing. When I was doing my book um, long ago at this point, if Aristotle ran General Motors, which was not just about Aristotle and it wasn't just about General Motors, but it was a, about how any iconic great philosopher would advise any business of whatever size as to how to make things great. Um, I kept coming back to an insight Aristotle had in his book, The Politics, where, and he, he doesn't put it into words this simple, but rereading the politics over and over, I realized there was a formula throughout the book for human greatness. 
that human greatness always occurs through people in partnership for a shared purpose. And so you have three elements there. You have people, plural, partnership, a certain kind of relationship amongst those people for a shared purpose, a guiding star for that relationship. So people in partnership for a shared purpose. Now, it used to be in most of human history that people got together in partnerships of all kinds. There were civic clubs, there were bowling leagues, there were tennis clubs, there were uh, social clubs and activities, and there still are, but that has really waned in American culture and often in cultures around the world. So we don't find ourselves in that many communal, collective, joint enterprise situations outside business. So it's become the case now increasingly that business is the one place where we reliably find people in partnership for a shared purpose. What's that purpose going to be? Is it just going to be financial? Well, it's hard to get people excited about that long term. And you can't really have people at their best, doing their best, producing their best, unless they're passionate about what they're doing. The right purpose can incite the right kind of passion. And that's what I've always been interested in, in bringing philosophy to business, that kind of deeper insight that will help people dig deeper and rise higher at the same time. Yeah, I love that. I I grew up, as I mentioned, and Mark Strom, who introduced me to you, always used to talk about the idea of polis as that piece of the partnership for living well. What does this look like? How do we come together? And 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 always connecting the idea of leadership to those you serve, to what is the purpose of of what you're actually trying to achieve? Where are you trying to get to as as a collective? I think that's a, a really important idea. It's interesting too, when you're speaking, a lot of the aspects that came up in those different concepts you've raised all come back to our need to think and have multiple perspectives or lenses that we we look at the world through. And I think one of the pieces that we often fall into is the trap of becoming very one-dimensional. So we we swing to extremes and we treat the world as if it's this black and white either or option. And a lot of the work that I'm doing is trying to help people to have what I call a both and mindset. So how do you say, okay, broaden out those perspectives? Because I think as you've said, there are so many components that that come into leading to us being effective leaders or yeah. getting those yeah. outcomes. No, that's right. I mean, I, I've seen a one-dimensionality that's a temptation in modern life where a little kid, the first thing he gets good at, like he's a good drummer in a band or he's a good soccer player, it's, he just does that. And he, he, he drops his friends who aren't musicians just to play drums with other musicians, or he drops his friends who don't play soccer or football or basketball. He just does that. But imagine a basketball player here in the U.S. That's so big. Imagine a basketball player who just works on his dribbling. All he wants to be is the greatest dribbler in the world. He can't pass the ball. He can't shoot the ball, but he's a great dribbler. He's never going to attain greatness in the sport until he broadens himself out along many different dimensions. So that the great athletes in every sport tend to be athletes who can do many things well and keep in mind um, each of those activities and skills when they're doing the others. They're ready to make a shift, to make a switch, to make a pivot whenever it's natural, whenever it's needed, because they don't just have a monomaniacal or one-dimensional um, perspective on what they're doing. And in business, the more we can put things into a proper perspective, the more we empower ourselves to have a bigger impact. And you're right, uh, for, for far too long, there was just a lot of training in business schools on just the financial side of things or the logistics side of things, the, the technical details, but not the people side of things. And, and in the end, business is a, is a people activity. It's a, it's a humane endeavor. It's a, it's, a, it's a human engagement with each other and the world so that we have to keep people in mind and what people need. And that's what the philosophers have always been probing into and trying to bring us the best of their wisdom. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. My mind goes back to when I met you. So 
I had the, I was very fortunate. I still have no idea why you actually agreed to meet me, but uh, I'm very thankful you did. But uh, the the situation was I was traveling. I had just turned 20. I'd been traveling on and off for a few years since I finished high school. I was a little bit lost. And uh, Mark Strom, who was a, a family friend who I'd grown up with, had suggested it was, it was at the time your book, if Aristotle ran General Motors had come out, I, you and Mark had been having some some email interactions, I think. And uh, Mark did an email introduction. And here you are, a successful, established author, philosopher, and some random 20-year-old from Australia contacts you. And the generosity that you had to not only be willing to talk with me, but to offer for me to, to come down. I couldn't afford to fly down, so I got a bus <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, I came down to visit and you, you put me up in a, a lovely place uh, near, near your home and we spent a bunch of time over, um, I think, about two days together having conversations. Yeah. And when I think about that, I went through some old photos last night and I found a photo just before I met, met you when I was travelling. And what was amusing, so I've got big backpack on the back and the front. What is amusing is I had just had this horrendous haircut, short hair, and had my hair dyed because I had just seen the movie Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow. And I thought, oh, I'll look like Gwyneth if I get short blonde hair. The Sliding Doors piece is interesting, though, because when we think about this aspect of the conversations, leadership, how we make decisions. I had my attempt at a sliding doors haircut. <laughs> I came down and, and spent time with you where you gave me your books, you asked me great questions, and I was trying to make this big decision of I hadn't yet committed to going to university. I thought I might want to be a singer. I was, you know, playing with all these ideas. And you helped me process and work through and ultimately decide to go to university. I studied politics, international relations. And it was a really pivotal moment for me that I'm very thankful for your yeah. input on. Yeah. That's but I great. wonder. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember I remember pretty vividly. And my wife even said to me when I told her that we would be talking, she said, I remember taking her to the bus station. Yes. Yeah, you both picked me up. And yeah, it was amazing. But when you think of even right down to that, so there's, there's two pieces that come to mind for me related to that. One is that in the, the way that you engaged with me, that spoke deeply to your character and who you are as a person. And so I think there's some beautiful aspects around um, us showing up consistently and with um, that authenticity of who we are as leaders. But then the other is that it speaks to the importance of creating the space and time to reflect ask good questions, have people with you as sounding boards. I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about over the years as you've worked with different leaders, what, how important is that creation of space and reflection and coming to clarity for us as leaders? Because I don't think we do it enough. No, we, we don't do it enough. You're exactly right. I mean, I wish, by the way, I wish I could take more credit for uh, everything I had done when you visited, but I mean, what are you supposed to do when Gwyneth Paltrow shows up at your front door? You know? <laughs> Anybody would rise to that occasion. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's important to make time. I've had leaders fly across the country when they faced a question just to sit with me on a rocking chair at the beach here in Wilmington, North Carolina, stare at the ocean for a few hours and talk through the problem with no phones ringing, no assistance coming into the room, no interruptions whatsoever. And that can make a huge difference. I remember one uh, leader coming for, uh, we stayed all day on a, a veranda at a hotel over on the, on the water. And we just sat, uh, uh, there's a nice breeze that day. We sat in the chairs and rocked and he told me all the problems he was going through in his company. We gave ourselves the time and space, a little bubble, if you will, where he could settle his own mind because often there's just too much going on in our conscious minds. We can't manage it all. And I, a few years ago, I wrote a series of novels unexpectedly. I was sitting having breakfast one day. I was supposed to be working on a book 
uh, that came out a couple years ago called Plato's Lemonade Stand. It's about the old, when life hands you lemons, make lemonade adage, you know, advice. Everybody says that in the U.S. where I grew up. When life hands you lemons, make lemonade, but they don't say how. So I decided I'm going to go back to the great philosophers and find out if anybody said how you do this, which, by the way, is about more than just resilience or bouncing back from a difficulty. It's about more than grit or soldiering on through a difficulty. It's about taking difficulty and transforming it somehow into delight, which is a kind of an alchemy or transformational mindset, which I think every business needs. Well, I was working on that book when this novel started playing as a movie in my head, played for five years, became a story of over a million words in eight volumes, set in Egypt in 1934 and 1935. But one of the key characters, in a sense, my Dumbledore, my Gandalf, a wise old character who taught me more than any of my actual professors did, this fictional character, in a couple of places in the story, is talking about the chatter in our conscious minds, the clutter in our conscious minds. He says we have to get beyond the chatter. We have to get beneath the clutter because that's where the real treasure is to be found. And so many business leaders are living amidst constant chatter and clutter in their conscious minds. And so they don't have the room for creativity to bubble up to the degree that it could. So we try to get together and settle it down. You know, I, I use the image I played in, like your uh, desires to be a singer, I played in bands for many years, and you can still see guitars all over my study around me. But uh, my image as a musician was turning down the volume control on the amplifier, turning it down to zero, letting the mind calm, letting all the debris settle. And there's a spiritual idea of emptiness, which I had never understood. But during the writing of the novels, which started in February of 2011, I learned to become empty so that I could be filled with insight. When there's no room in our hearts and minds, when we're so busy, we're, 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 it's so cluttered, there can be a confusion level that we don't even recognize as such. We think we have a pretty good grip on our business, right? We've been doing it successfully for a very long time. We don't realize there's some vagueness. There's some confusion that just gets lost amidst the chaos and the clutter. But when we let the clutter settle down, when we quiet the chatter, we begin to hear and see things with a level of clarity we didn't even know we were missing because it had been so long since we experienced it. So when I work with executives, and it could be an executive who has 200,000 employees, or it could be a person with a very small company doesn't matter. Their minds can be just as cluttered, and they will need that time and that space to reflect. It can be a very empowering thing. Yeah. I think, too, one of the pieces that's interesting is that so often part of the challenge is in all of that noise, the expectations, all of those pieces that are coming at us, we can think we have clarity because we are charging after things with what seems like real focus. And yeah. it is that piece for me, part of why I started the podcast was using very similar language saying to people, this is about quieting the noise, helping you tune in to your own voice to get to that clarity of well, what is it that you actually want? And I think certainly in terms of ancient thinkers, there's a lot of wisdom to be uh, tapped into around these ideas of knowing yourself of figuring out all of those components. Are there critical aspects when you think about the both the ideas of knowing yourself and then getting clear on what does success actually even mean for you as an individual? Are there particular thinkers or ideas that you like to go to uh, and, and bring to our attention? Yeah, I, it, it is funny. There, there are many philosophers who help me um, uh, 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 clear my mind because we have so many contemporary images of success. It's almost as if they send a subliminal message that this is what success looks like. This is what success has to look like. This is the definition of success. And yet when we realize that people have been thinking about success and attaining various forms of success for thousands of years in very different cultures, there's not just 
one size fits all about human success. It's not like walking into a department store and picking a suit off the rack and it's going to just magically fit. The self-knowledge part is requires a lot of reflection and requires a lot of listening to other people as well. A lot of people misunderstand self-knowledge as if it's just something you shut yourself away in a room and you kind of figure out. Um, I've found that sometimes the best self-knowledge comes from listening to what other people are telling me about me, um, whether it's a spouse, a friend, uh, whether it's a friend trained in psychology, um, whether it's a great coach, a corporate executive coach, a, a, a really well-trained life coach, to, to listen to what people are asking me, to listen to the comments people are making, that, that, that self-knowledge is about the self, but at its best, it can be a social enterprise where you're drawing from many perspectives to get clearer about your own heart. Peter Drucker, often called the Dean of Management Literature, said in an interview someplace many years ago, the greatest book on leadership ever written was Xenophon's Education of Cyrus. And I thought, I'm a philosopher and I've never even heard of this book. What is this? What well, turns out, Socrates had two really smart students. One of them we know, it was Plato, very theoretical guy. The other we don't hear of so much is a very practical guy, Xenophon, a military leader. He was Socrates' student too, and he wrote stuff about so Socratic memorabilia. He wrote all kinds of little essays about Socrates. He also wrote some amazing other books. One of them is about Cyrus the Great. It's kind of a fictionalization of Cyrus the Great. But at one point during the story, um, there's a there's a, a, a king that Cyrus is going to have to do battle with. And uh, the king has a really scary reputation. He's supposed to be, you know, almost impossible to beat. And so Cyrus kind of knows what he's up against. But Cyrus's army slices through this other guy's army like, like a hot knife through butter. And Cyrus calls this king in and says, look, this was too easy. What, what's going on here? Uh, why were you so easy to defeat? And the guy said, well, I thought I knew myself uh, because I believed all the wrong things that people were saying around me about who I was and what I could do. Problem is, I'd never been up against a challenge like you before. So I thought I had everything it takes to beat any army that might come to my doorstep. I was wrong. In fact, he said, I thought self-knowledge was the easiest thing in the world. Turns out it may be the opposite maybe one of the hardest things in the world. So there's an amazing little philosophical insight just in this one little episode in a much longer book full of philosophical insights. But self-knowledge as a difficult process that we devote almost an inverse amount of time to. I mean, the, the hardest thing, one of the hardest things, Thaley said it long before that he thought self-knowledge might be the hardest thing in the world. Well, how much time do we devote to it? Maybe the least time that we devote to anything. Yeah. And then even even on that, when we do devote time to it, a little bit like your cautionary tale just spoke to, it's who are the voices that we're then listening to or taking advice from? Because if we're then actually not having the wisdom or discernment to be cautious of, of who we listen to, that can actually be time that is not well spent because we we still end up in a place where there isn't the type of clarity that we're talking about, which is that true knowledge of self that is empowers Absolutely. you and, and leads towards the the piece that again, if if we go back to um, what's the hardest thing, what's the most important thing, and the most important thing being the idea of uh, true success or what does that look like? And I know for myself in my own life that it's definitely played out as uh, the great thinkers said that you can't get to that that point of even knowing what success is for you unless you first know yourself. And I think that piece, Tom, is a real challenge, I think, for a lot of people because we're used to as people who have grown up being labelled as a leader or being seen in all of those outward ways as someone who can achieve, hit goals, lead others, the piece that gets uh, drawn attention to is our decisiveness, our action, the way that we step into those things. And so 
that can confuse us into thinking, well, that's the most valuable thing, like just act, move, keep moving, uh, look confident, <laughs> uh, yeah. which is not the same thing as deep knowledge or self, self-awareness and an articulation that is clear about what success means for you. They're, they're different things. That's right. In fact, the tech world in the U.S., there were all these slogans for a while, you know, move fast, break things. Well, what did we get as a result? A lot of broken things that aren't doing as much, much good. Um, it, it's not a matter of speed. Uh, it, 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 it's a matter of propriety and rightness and fit, as the ancients would, would say. Um, you, you, you asked me the question about what to read for self-knowledge. One of the things I've been rereading a lot is Marcus Aurelius. It's 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 his personal journal. He was emperor of Rome, and he was a Stoic philosopher. His um his personal journal. It's called the Meditations. That name was given to it, you know, probably within the last hundred years or so. It didn't have a title because he didn't write it for publication. It was just his notes to himself about his own struggles in self knowledge and self management. A friend of mine who's a great executive coach says that most of the problems his CEO clients bring to him uh, have come about because of a lack of self-awareness and a lack of self-management. He said, "If I, he said, I used to just help them deal with the problems. And then I realized, you know what? There are going to be a lot fewer problems if I can help them instead with the self-knowledge and self-management. Marcus Aurelius is struggling in his journals, which he wrote toward the end of his life. With that self-knowledge and self-management, he often critiques himself in those journals, which helps us as we are onlookers to his very personal um, debates with himself about whether he's acting in accordance with his own values and his own principles consistently or not. And he'll correct himself. And he'll he'll talk about how he needs to do a review in the evening of, how did I do today? What did I do well? What did I do badly? What could I have improved on? And then in the morning, he had another kind of set of reflections where he would he would kind of prepare himself for all the unpleasant personality he was going to confront during the day he says look you're going to, you're going to meet people who are who are envious who are mean who are uh, stubborn who are arrogant who are and he sort of prepares himself with a list of personality don't let this throw you they're just qualities represented in the world has nothing to do with you it's just who they are just deal with it with peace and tranquility. Then you can make the right decisions and not be all upset by these other people's personalities. So when you read Marcus, you read a man struggling with his own self-awareness and self-management, and that gives you clues about your own. Now, there have been a, a bunch of modern translations. Gregory Hayes, the modern library edition, is really good. Um, there are some two brothers whose last name is Hicks. Hicks and Hicks, they have a, a good version um, called The Emperor's Notebook, but most versions are just uh, have the title uh, Meditations. But that's a great thing for people to read, I think. Yeah, and I know most people probably aren't going to read uh, Tolstoy, but I know you have read multiple times over and, and come back to some of that work. I, I think that there's also some pieces worth exploring around these questions that we ask ourselves. So if we go back to that idea of being pulled along towards what the world has told us success looks like, a certain kind of achievement, position, etc. The The idea of stopping and asking those questions of why am I actually behaving the way I am? Why am I making the decisions I'm making? Just those reflective questions that, mm -hmm. again, as you said, you could rattle off many different thinkers who have been, been talking about this, but those those pieces, I think, are really critical to be able to ultimately do, you know, there's that old saying, slow down to speed up. And I think often leaders can struggle to believe that that's actually true. And yet my experience, and I'm sure yours, has been that to get to that place, place that you just described around really being able to sit and be calm and have that confidence that you are acting in and making decisions in a way that are aligned with what is most important to you. Yeah. We can't get yeah. to that place without these questions and without the reflection. You're absolutely right. And people want to be decisive. People want to be, you know, folks of action, right? Uh, 
I mean, one of the first things of the statue that represents my profession, the thinker, Rodin's famous sculpture. I remember I was in Helsinki, Finland at their art museum once running through the museum. And all of a sudden I went around a corner and there was, I almost ran right into the, uh, one of the instances of the thinker. And I noticed right away, well, this is a very muscular character, which I'd never noticed in pictures before. I'd never thought about it, at least. But in, in, in person, a, a tremendous musculature. And I thought, oh, the thinker is also a man of action. But he's called the thinker because that's what has to come first for the action to be appropriate, to be proper, to be good, to be productive. We're rushing around trying to do things taking action without dwelling long enough and listening. I've come to understand the, the power of listening as almost a spiritual discipline. Listen to the people around you. Listen to the circumstances. Listen to the market. Listen to the competition. Listen to the, the, the voices of the people who work with you. When we're not good listeners, we're never as effective as we could be as actors, as doers. Um, and so that is probably one of the hardest disciplines. It, it may be almost as hard as self-knowledge just to be quiet and listen, to ask the right questions of others as well as of yourself, and to really listen to the answers and, and, and marinate in what you learn. L let it sit with it for a bit before you act too quickly, uh, because we're always cleaning each other's messes up in the world these days because people are acting too quickly without reflective wisdom about what their actions should be. Yeah, so true. I often say to people, you know, when we think about the ideas of wanting to be decisive, make these big decisions, well, if you make a really quick decision, but then you can't sleep for six months because you're so stressed because of the consequences of a bad decision, it's like, that wasn't necessarily a great a great way to, to engage. So, uh, you know, we need to be right, careful. You end up digging yourself out of a hole that you didn't have to be in in the first place, right? So that's not an efficient yeah. procedure at all. And sometimes, I become more reflective by repeated readings of great literature. For example, three years ago, I reread Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. I reread the Odyssey in one year, four times cover to cover in three different translations. And I reread the Iliad that year twice cover to cover. And I came to realize for the first time what they're about. I mean, I'd read both books a couple times previous decades, but just by repeated and I'm doing this with Marcus Aurelius now with the meditations, but by repeated acquaintance, I'm coming deeper to understand. The Iliad is about the power of partnership. The Odyssey is about the power of purpose. The Iliad is about a partnership that breaks down right at the beginning of the book between Agamemnon, the leader of the Greeks, and Achilles, the top performer of the Greeks. It's an ego battle between these two guys. It becomes an ego battle rather than a partnership. They're there for a purpose, to get Helen back from the Trojans and take her back to her husband. But they start battling each other, and, and just you know, lots of people die because of the breakup of their partnership. And then the, the power of positive partnership, when it works, is illustrated in small ways throughout the story. And then, and then the, the war's over. The Greeks win. The Trojan horse thing works. Uh, they're all going home. Everybody gets home except Odysseus, who is supposed to be the cleverest and most creative of them all. He's the one who can't manage to get home. He faces every obstacle imaginable and lots that we couldn't have imagined had not Homer written about him. And the way he gets through them all is his sense of strong, his strong sense of purpose. He wants to get home to his wife and his son. He has a clear, strong purpose that gets him through through everything. Um, if we kind of reflect on those two foundational documents in history, then we understand, wow, the power of partnership, the power of purpose. When you bring them together, like Aristotle said, people in partnership for a shared purpose, that's where you get amazing possibilities resulting. Yeah, and I think it comes back to as well the idea of we need to start in that place of self-knowledge. So there is components, it is about us. There is a bit of navel-gazing that goes on. It's working out what this looks like. But if it stops there, that's not effective. It's then the piece of stepping outside of yourself and going, okay, might have started here and I need the self-awareness, but it then yeah. needs to become bigger than me and, and move out 
to absolutely outside. that's so important for people to understand because most important things in life are not either or they're both and situations so you have your yin and your yang you have what look like opposing things but actually are mutually entwined mutually interpenetrating things so that self-knowledge well I, I did a talk not too long ago for a couple of business business schools and at one part early in the talk i talked about um you know socrates stressing self-knowledge plato stressing situational knowledge uh, know thyself very important know thy situation uh plato's cave we all live in a cave of illusions the job of philosophy is to to peel back those illusions so that we understand the people and situations around us uh more accurately so you can't do it with just self-knowledge alone you need the situational knowledge to complement that it's a mutual complementarity situation so that when i'm working with people and of course with the pandemic a lot of the work i'm had done in, in person with folks for you know 20 some 30 years uh we switched to doing zoom to doing virtual but you can make tremendous headway in working with an executive it, it, they don't have to come to wilmington north carolina and sit in a rocking chair i can i can have amazing conversations with people um through zoom the the magic of what we're doing now and help them to see these things in in their own lives so we make use of whatever tools we have, but the ancient wisdom is always the same. We're just we're just employing it in different ways. And we see culture throughout history, people drift away from the true insights, the true wisdom because of the illusions in the cave, as Plato talked about. And yet we have to pull people back from those illusions. Wait a minute, what are the deep things here? What are the deep truths here? What are the real insights we need to be acting on? And we could have had a flourishing enterprise based in illusions. And it's not that we have to give up the enterprise. We just have to give up the illusions and then we can elevate the enterprise to a, to a higher level because a lot of people who, who don't have self knowledge and situational knowledge in the way the philosophers were talking about, they can have amazing success, but they will never have the greatest success they're capable of unless they peel back those illusions and plug into the realities that will lift them up. Yeah. It also makes me think of, well, there are a lot of great thinkers that speak into how you actually gain and uh, maintain power or position, like how that actually plays out. There's a lot of great thinking around that historically. But it does make me think of a book that I read recently uh, by Keltner called The Paradox of Power. And he did oh, yeah. sort of 20 years of, of research into how power actually plays out. And it it, it makes me think of one of your books that, that will be coming out shortly as well around some of these ideas of success as a cautionary tale and when power actually plays out in ways that we haven't been taught and we have these misconceptions about how power and position actually is, is gained and maintained. And, and there's some beautiful aspects that Keltner spoke about around, you know, enduring power comes from empathy. Enduring power comes from giving. Enduring power comes from expressing gratitude and telling stories that unite. He has these beautiful pieces that are actually then backed up with the research of how it shows that, that the communities or those ecosystems that actually are the situations we're working in. So if you go to Plato's piece of not just knowing yourself but knowing the situation, I think we have been sold some stories that aren't actually true about how society will engage and how you will actually maintain something like power and not in a Machiavellian sense or but in mm -hmm. in a sense of if you're trying to make a change in the world or shift how people engage there does need to be some aspects of influence and and power and so thinking about these things and being able to make this transition doing the work to know and understand yourself then stepping outside of that to a bigger picture of what does this look like in terms of the change I'm trying to create or the influence I want to have in the world, how do I need to behave and show up for that to play out well? I'm wondering, Tom, if we then shift into the, the even bigger picture around having clarity on our vision of, yes, what does true success look like, but at that level of vision and, and what we're trying to be part of, I still have, you gave me many years ago, what was it, 23 years ago or something now, 
your little card with your seven. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, seven it's, factors it's, of. It's it's evolved into a blue card now yeah. with one of the novel uh, covers. There you go. Back. I've got the original. Um, you got the original. Yeah, right? when I was going through photos last night trying to find things, I found this in my treasure box. So, the when you think of it, even just and again, because obviously there's a much bigger conversation, but if we just stick with the aspect around that clear conception of what we want, a vivid vision, a goal clearly imagined as as the wording that you had framed all those years ago. What are the the steps, the things we need to reflect on and and do to get that clarity around a vision that can then pull us forward now that we we know ourselves we're coming from a place of clarity. How do we get a clear vision? You know, I I tell people, don't be afraid to go through a period of confusion in your efforts to clarify, because sometimes confusion is not the enemy of clarity. It's the prelude to clarity. It's the doorway to clarity. You have to be willing to, to fight through the vagueness, to fight through the confusion sometimes. I use the simple technique of writing because for some reason, the disciplined borders of language will clarify my otherwise fuzzy thinking. I'll think I know something pretty well. I think I know what I'm up to. But if I make myself write it down, okay, what exactly am I shooting for here? What exactly am I trying to make happen? And, and I'll find myself surprisingly paused for a moment, not clearly being able to lay out my vision for some enterprise I'm engaged in. And so I'll make myself do that. I'll make myself use the disciplined borders of language. Now, it can work in two ways. A lot of the motivational literature of a few decades ago talked about writing down goals as if it were like a magical talisman, as if there was some kind of alchemy in just the act of writing. You know, write down your goals and they will happen, people would say from the stages of the world. There's nothing magical about writing stuff down. But what's almost magical is just the power of language, whether you talk through your goals with a team or a spouse or a friend, whether you write them down yourself, make it a linguistic exercise which forces clarity on you. You have to pick one word rather than another. You'll write down a sentence and say to yourself, that's not quite right. When you see the sentence on, on paper or on your document on the screen and it makes you rethink, no, that's not exactly what I want. Uh, it's it's a progressive enterprise of gaining clarity step by step. And like you were saying earlier, often we don't give ourselves the time and space for that because we're running forward. Seneca, another Stoic philosopher, along with Marcus Aurelius, once said, what good is it to run even faster if you're on the wrong road? You're getting farther from your true goal, right? And so we have to think of slowing down, not as something we don't want to do. The world wants us to go faster and faster. We've got to say, no, 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 we need to slow down and rethink to make sure we're going in the right direction. So you get, like in, in Keltner's work and in other psychologists examining power and its effects on the brain, almost the same effects as temporary brain damage on many people. And it's not just the power itself, it's the felt power. It's the sense of power. And and. Unlike some forms of, of actual brain damage, um, once you lose power, for many people, this, this dissipates. But while you have a sense of power, in all too many cases, it can make a, a create a lack of empathy, an increased uh, risk-taking behavior, a lack of a sense of consequences, a lack of sociability. Um, and, and you cut yourself off from a lot of the information and data from people around you that you should be listening to. We need to learn from these psychologists who are studying power because power done right can be one of the world's great renewable resources. But done wrong, we burn through it fast and there's none left. Yes, absolutely. And I think you're so right that those pieces that come out in the research are fascinating around we, with, without a conscious awareness of it, the very things that uh, we need to avoid other things that are the, the natural temptation once you're in power and they will be the things that will undermine you. So it, it, it is, again, the, the importance of actually having the practices around a curiosity, learning, having good advisors, engaging in these things, um, 
is, is such a critical piece if we want to have some longevity and impact in the work that we're doing. That, that's right. And, and I found that it benefits leaders to have people like you and me who want to tell them the truth. Because when people just surround themselves with folks who want to tell them what they want to hear, that's how they drift farther and farther from where they ought to be. And this is not new either. Xenophon, whom we talked about earlier, uh, wrote um, a short essay about a poet who goes to visit a tyrant, a king uh, named Hero. And the poet shows up and says, oh, man, it must be great to be king. I'm really envious of you. And the guy says, no. He said, you have no idea what it's like to be at the top. People never tell you what you need to hear. They just tell you what the, you want. They think you want to hear. People are envious of you. They they sometimes even come to hate you. They're looking for ways to undermine you. And he comes up with this long list of ways it's terrible to be at the top. And so this is in the ancient world. This is not anything new. And so the poet basically says, oh, well, that's terrible. Uh, and at the end of the short story, the poet says, I think I've got a solution for all this. Um, everything you have told me about, I think there's one thing, one change you can make, and it all falls away. And, and, and this king says, what is that? And he says, being king so far has been too much about you. It's been too much about your riches, your power, your status in the world. Uh, you're the envy of all the other kings. Um, and this, this sets off resentment and bitterness and envy amongst your people. And it makes them, they're just concerned to please you because they're afraid of you. And what if you become a servant leader instead? And, and the guy's like, well, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? He said, no, uh, kind of redo your purposes that you are serving your people rather than having them serve you. So you'll look great on a global stage. And and then he kind of goes through how all the stuff the king is complaining about can, will fall away if he changes his approach. Now, can you imagine that one of Socrates' students was talking about this? It's a really Amazing. great example too, though, because I think um, if we bring that back into the world of for business leaders, the same thing becomes available when we broaden our concept of the purpose of business. So if we shift from seeing business as having a sole purpose around maximization of value for a shareholder, and we instead go to the broader stakeholders group of, okay, how do we be adding value to customers, employees, suppliers, the community that we operate in, and our shareholders? So again, not ruling out the need to make money, but if we have that broader sense, what happens is that same elimination of the pieces that were present for the king who was then being resented. And if in your business, you've actually designed a business model that creates a win-win, where as your business does better, the community is actually rooting for you because they're saying, great, when you do well, we as a community do well, there's benefit for us in this. They're not then working against you or resenting your success because it's their success as well. The same whether it's with our team. If we create a situation where when the business wins, they win, then we're not continually broadening the gap between us and everyone else. And I think that piece of the win-win is at the heart of any of this work that says when we do this and we bring back together ideas that we have over recent decades become so uh, accustomed with seeing as being mutually exclusive. If we bring them back together, there is a richness available for everyone that creates that kind of win-win that your story just spoke to. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's a, it's a, it's a reversal of mindset for a lot of people. It's an expanding of mindset for everybody that you, you understand. Well, let me quote another Stoic philosopher. Stoics are on my brain these days because I'm writing a book about them. But uh, Epictetus, who was a slave and was freed and became one of the famous philosophy teachers of his day. In fact, the Emperor Marcus Aurelius learned his Stoicism from Epictetus, the slave. And Epictetus in many uh, places says, look, I was a slave, but guess what? So is everybody. We're all enslaved to something. We all have chains that are holding us back. And sometimes they're golden chains. They can, they can look great. It looks like jewelry, right? But it's holding you back. And I want to free, I want to free you, you all from all the chains of enslavement that are, that are keeping you from being and doing your best in the world. 
when a person is just working for shareholder value, he or she feels like a slave working for the master and um, can get into that mindset of resentment and bitterness and envy and, and all those negative emotions, which never facilitate excellence. But when you feel like you're part of a flourishing enterprise where everyone is benefiting, everyone on every level. In fact, um, I wrote a little book about, um, about patriotism and about citizenship it came out last summer called the everyday patriot it was written for americans first and foremost so it's kind of subtitled how to be a great american now but i've gotten emails from all over the world people tell me i live in the caribbean and uh, on an island and it's made me a better citizen of this island or i live in bucharest romania it's made me want to be a better romanian there was a guy another philosopher in in the first or second century a roman um named Heracles that we almost never hear about. And Heracles had this idea of concentric circles, that your life can be mapped, my life can be mapped by concentric circles. The innermost circle is your own heart and mind. You have to get that right, or you're not going to be able to get any of the circles right in your life. So work on your own heart and mind, and then you can contribute in a positive way to the next circle, your family, your household. Make your family, your household as strong as it can be. And then you'll be able to reach out to the next circle, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers. Help that to be as strong as it can be. And then you can reach out to the next circle, which might be your community, your town, your city, your industry, your profession. And you go on and on and on until you get to the world, the entire world. Now, Heracles had this idea that at any circle along the way, your job is to contribute to, to that circle in such a way that you strengthen the next circle out. And it's the job of the outer circles to reach back and support the inner circles. So that nobody's in animosity or enmity with anybody else. It's all about cooperation. In fact, we used to have this dominant natural metaphor that competition, nature, uh, bloody in tooth and claw, was some of the most insightful work about nature. Now, I'm thinking about Susan Simard and her book, The Mother Tree. Her book is about go into a forest. You'll find the most important things are going on under the soil. And the most important things are not competition at all. They are cooperation. There will be a tree that she calls the mother tree that has the most resources, that, that observes and listens to all the other plants and trees to see who needs what, and then makes those resources available so that they can flourish together. That's what's going on in nature all the time. Beneath any competition we see, you know, the hawk grabbing the small animal on the ground, we see competition, yes, but behind that is much greater depth of cooperation. Everyone flourishing in the ecosystem. If we can bring that into business and understand that that's how we flourish, it's when we, we cooperate and help each other with the resources we see other people need. We help each other flourish together. We can't flourish alone unless our ecosystem is flourishing. I wish more leaders thought like that. Yeah, I love that because I think whether it's in these more philosophical conversations, I like that your approach still, like mine, is to say we, we want to be pragmatic and we still have to drive to action. It's not just thinking for the sake of thinking, it's to inform better action taking towards the lives that we want to be living. Uh, and I think that's so important. And, and it is, as you said, the, the same piece plays out that the challenge comes when Anything that we interact with, so often when I have these conversations with leaders, there's an automatic assumption that I'm saying that they should set up a foundation or give away all their money. or like. And it's like, how did what I just said turn into the exact opposite of it? But we jump to extremes and we jump to these pieces of the competition and everything being a zero-sum game. I think we are so soaked in that these days that that it it has just become without even questioning when someone raises a different way of thinking we automatically assume that it it is about uh saying that everything we're doing is wrong and it has to be a, a flip to the other side <laughs> which is a tricky one but um yeah, what i'm yeah. you know chipping away at and hoping to to find enough leaders around the world who start to embrace that both end mindset and say you can do good money you just got to actually look at it in a way that is how do we create that win-win you're absolutely right and i'm seeing i've been doing this for over 30 years now and i'm seeing people wake up to these ideas 
increasingly. And we, of course, the news, our news organizations cover all the bad news. Uh, and it's good to know that too. You know, we, we need to know the, the harsh realities of the world in which we live. But the good news is, um, in difficult, challenging times, more and more people wake up to the necessity of wisdom. It's no longer viewed as a luxury. It, 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 they understand it's not the icing on the cake. It's part of the cake itself. Um, and, and that gives us fertile soil, uh, in which to plant the seeds of, of wisdom that we have gleaned from the great thinkers of the past who wanted us all to be successful in really, in really positive ways. None of the philosophers I read has any problem with money. No problem with money whatsoever. It's just that when that becomes the sole thing being sought, you're never going to be able to manage it. Well, if you do get it, you know, and, and we're just helping people build, as Socrates said, you have to build the foundation on the inside to get things right on the outside. And that's, that's what we're trying to, to uh, convey to people. And fortunately, more and more people are listening. And it, it's, it's, a great, it's a great thing to see. It is indeed. Tom, as we wrap up, are there any last words or ideas that you want to leave with us when you think of those of us who are running businesses, who have the opportunity to make a difference in the world through our business? Any parting words of wisdom from you that we should be reflecting on? Well, you know, um, that little card you showed, seven universal conditions from success uh, for success in any challenging endeavor, that was drawn from cross-cultural wisdom throughout the centuries. And I have had people in every uh, discipline, every domain, every industry tell me it changed their work, it changed their lives. Uh, the U.S. Air Force had a bunch of crashes and came to me to talk to their 1,500 top officers about those seven conditions for success. The Dayton Accords that helped Peace in Europe, one of the generals told me the seven seas of success ha helped uh, result in the Dayton Accords. Amazing stuff that I had no idea as a philosopher I would be providing people. So so for your listeners, those are in the books, True Success, and another book called The Art of Achievement. There are even a chapter in the book Plato's Lemonade Stand. But then there's the book um, that's, about, that's about goal setting, goal attainment in healthy ways, sustainable ways. And then the book If Aristotle Ran General Motors is about truth, beauty, goodness, and unity the intellectual, aesthetic, moral, and spiritual dimensions of what we do. You can't do anything in any business environment that doesn't have an intellectual, aesthetic, moral, and spiritual dimension. We need truth. We need beauty. We need goodness. That's what gives us unity. If we have unity together, we can accomplish things we never could have accomplished otherwise. So I would just leave uh, as a thought for anyone watching this podcast or listening to us that if you can remember what's most important, you attain what's most valuable. And uh, if you find yourself straying, no problem. You're like anybody else. We can pull ourselves back. Wisdom is about two things. It's about guidance and guardrails. The guidance is like a lighthouse showing us the way forward. The guardrails are like those metal guardrails when you're driving through the mountains that keep you from going off the edge as you're heading to your destination. For too many years, for too many decades, in business literature, we've just been talking about the guidance but we haven't been talking enough about the guardrails. We need to help people avoid their problems and their potholes and their disasters, and that way they can get more effectively to their true goals. Thank you so much. And if people want to learn some more or find your books or, or other things, where's the best place for them to go? Oh, I have an old website that uh, it, all my stuff is collected there, Tom V as in Victor Morris, TomVMorris.com. And uh, the, the about page, people can click the various social media emblems to follow me on LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I philosophize every day. I wake up every morning. I post a little paragraph or a few sentences on some idea that's just occurred to me, often with a beautiful photograph or picture illustrating some aspect of what I'm talking about. It generates amazing conversations with people in the ad world, with uh, tech people, with startup people, with people in traditional industries. We're all talking with each other throughout the day around that little bit of wisdom I've tried to bring. So I invite anybody, come join me and let's do that together. Love it. Well, we will share the, the link out to the website in the show notes. But Tom, thank you so much. It's such an important conversation that, again, I, I don't think gets enough airtime with leaders. Thank but you, I'm very thankful for you sharing your, your wisdom and, and knowledge that you've gathered over many, many decades. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for taking the time to listen to both success and integrity. 
with Bessie Graham. If you found what I shared today valuable, or you think that it would be good for a fellow business leader to listen to, then please share the episode with someone you know. Another way to help the podcast is to provide a rating and written review on your podcast app of choice. The written review is important because it helps others learn more about what we're trying to achieve. If you'd like to get in touch, please reach out to me at any time on LinkedIn, YouTube or Instagram just by searching Bessie Graham or you can go to BessieGraham.com. I'm Bessie Graham and remember, you don't have to choose between experiencing success or having integrity in your life.